So, uh, yeah, we're looking at uh, um, the letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. If you have a Bible with you, um, please can you uh, turn to that? It's um, right near the end. Um, so that's, that, that, if that's what comes before it. That's right near the end. Um, so keep flicking around the end if you're not over-familiar with the Bible and you'll come to Ephesians. Um, we, did it, we started the series last week and did an overview of the book, just tried to talk about the main themes and, and the big subjects, just to give you a feel for the book. What we're going to do today is we're going we're to dig into the first six verses. Uh, the Bible originally is not broken up into chapters and verses. That was something that came centuries later. Because it's such a big book, um, it was felt that it would be helpful to break it up into chapters and verses so you could find your way around it. Um, so some books in the Bible are like 60 chapters long. So if there was no reference points, it would be incredibly difficult to find your way around. But actually, those chapters and verses are not part of the Bible. And neither are the headings that come in between the sections. They're just added in um, with an aim to be helpful. But they're not part of the Bible, which means that one of the downsides with the chapters and verses, it means it can help us, it can make us read the Bible in quite an unnatural way. To, to break it up in ways that it was never meant to be broken up. So the letter to the Ephesians is one letter. It's six chapters long, but it's one letter. So if someone wrote you a letter, um, obviously, or, or, or an email, you know, whatever, but a, a, a decent chunk of writing to express something to you, the most natural thing in the world for you would be to read it all the way through, right? You wouldn't read a chunk one day, then a chunk the next day. Because you would lose the flow, because you would probably forget what was said the day before, and you'd end up with quite a strange idea of what the letter was about. Um, and so just to sort of say that really, in terms of maybe a comment on Bible reading, maybe it's a better idea to, to say, I'm going to read Ephesians rather than I'm going to read one chapter of the Old today, one chapter of Psalms, one chapter of the New. Actually, maybe it's a better idea to say, I'm going I'm to just read all the way through on some things and really get, catch the flow. Now... The important thing for you to know is that the first um, verses 3 to 14 in chapter 1 are originally one sentence. Because Paul does what he often does, which is why some people don't like Paul's writings, is that he starts saying something, gets really excited, goes off on that, and then comes back and then builds on that. And it's just like an explosion of um, spiritual excitement about what he's writing. He's not, a, he's not a cold-hearted scholar up in a tower somewhere. He's very scholarly, but his heart's on fire for Jesus. So even though I'm preaching on the first six verses today, I'm going to read the first 14 and I want you to bear in mind that where it says blessed be the God, from that point onwards to the end, is one sentence. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things 
things in heaven and things on earth, on earth in him. We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, that is, that is what the gospel, um, uh, that, is, that is, I guess, when the gospel is really at work in someone's life, they should probably find themselves talking in long sentences sometimes. You know, just because actually gri- you're actually gripped by the thing. Um, he's not writing a theological treatise for some scholars to critique. He's writing to a church, to a bunch of people like us, who have come to know Jesus, and he's wanting to encourage them. But he's got an incredible mind. And he's called by God to do this, and he's, there's grace on him for it, but it's the burning heart that we want you to see. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time just to make some maybe obvious points, but important points in the introduction. Firstly, Paul, uh, so we've got a from and a to in, in ancient times, rather than writing who it was from at the, at the end of the letter, it's written at the start, which I think makes much more sense, because what do we all do anyway when we get a letter? Find out who it's from first, because it affects how you read it. So, um, which is what's so helpful about emails, you see the name in the inbox first, so you know, okay, I know who it is. So it makes more sense, so you've got a from and you've got a to. So the from is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now I want to just quickly make the point that from this, that Jesus changes lives. Paul, even though he says that actually God set him apart from his mother's womb to be an apostle, You see that in Galatians. Actually, he wasn't always an apostle. There came a moment in his life where God broke in and didn't just make him an apostle, made him a Christian first. He was a very religious man and a very strict man and a very zealous man. By his nature, he's he's volcanic. Um, Incredibly passionate. And um, he had actually, uh, he was actually set against Christians because he felt that that the followers of the way, as Christianity was called, was, was, was a false idea. That the one who, this Jesus was not the Messiah, he was not the Christ, he was a pretender, and he was so jealous for, for the true God, uh, in his mind who was the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, he, he, was, he was completely in disagreement with the, with the idea that Jesus had come to reveal that God. No, Jesus was a pretender, and he gained permission from the authorities in Jerusalem to travel to Damascus, to um, arrest as many of these followers he could find, and uh, punish them. In fact, he, he says that he, his desire was to destroy the church. In Galatians you'll find that. He wanted to destroy the church. And now he calls himself later on in the Bible a master builder. This is really important because what Paul writes in these verses does come out of his experience. See, here's someone who wasn't wanting to find out more about Christianity. (laughs) He wouldn't have found him on Alpha or some kind of course which explores Christianity. He hated Christianity and he wanted to destroy it. But God had other ideas. God had a plan for his life. And God did not ask him permission, simply revealed the, the glory of his son Jesus to him in a very direct and powerful way while he was travelling to Damascus and, and turned his life in a completely, into a complete U-turn, 180 degrees. Jesus changes lives. 
We mustn't take the humanity out of scripture. This is a person writing this whose life has been changed by Jesus. You may be in the room today and your life has not been changed by Jesus. And I'm not saying it has to be dramatic. You know, some people are brought up in Christian homes and, you know, they never become um, mass murderers or drug dealers or, 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 or Christian bashers. You know, they don't become that. They actually, from a very early age, come to know Jesus. But actually, they, what they do experience is the transforming work of Jesus in their life. So it hasn't got to be dramatic. It can be very gradual. But it's real. He changes lives. He's at work by the power of his Holy Spirit in us. Working from the inside out. It's not just people trying to conform to some external rules and behaviour and how, how, how do Christians look. No, there is a power at work within us by the Holy Spirit when we come to Christ. His Spirit lives inside of us. In that moment, he comes and indwells us and goes to work transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Jesus changes lives. We've already heard today about how he, he's the perfecter of our faith. The first part of that verse says he's the author. So he starts to write into our hearts this, this supernatural thing, this faith that we can somehow live as if we see him who is unseen. That we can order our life in, in light of the, the fact that he is real. That we can make decisions based more than anything else on the fact of what, what does Jesus say. That doesn't make sense to the natural person. Maybe you're here today and you think, no, that sounds alien to me. Even if you've been at church for years. Or maybe you're new to church. I want to just start by saying, Jesus really does change lives. And it's not about whether you've... It's not about whether you are qualified in yourself or good enough. We really want to get rid of all of that because that actually works against grasping the gospel. Paul was wanting to destroy the church. He wasn't good enough. God had other plans for him. God's plan won. So that's who it's from, and this is who it's to. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now it's really important that we understand this word saints, because probably for the vast majority of people on the planet, what does saint mean? Well, it means a special category of Christian. A Christian who's canonized at some point because they did a certain number of miracles and lived an exemplary life, they become a saint. That's how most people understand the word. That is not what the Bible means by the word. In the Bible, a saint is a Christian. That's shocking, isn't it? So, so uh, today, um, Saint Stephen is preaching uh, to Revelation Church. You'll be pleased. You can say you met a saint. You met lots of saints there if you're in this room. It, it's just a, it's a term given. The word means holy one, and the word holy simply means that you have you, that you have been set apart. That through through God coming into your life as you turn to Jesus, He separated you. From, um, from, how is the best way to describe it? It's like, it's like, um, an image the Bible uses is of a big lump of clay. Uses different images, but here's one. A big lump of clay, and and it's all going to be kind of used for just very normal, uh, jugs and things to be made in a house. But someone will come along and say, and and, and find, cut some off and say, we're going to use this clay and we're going to make some jugs for the king and the queen. So it's set apart from the, that for the common use, it's set apart for special purposes. That's the best way to understand holiness, that as you come to Christ, you are, you are set apart. It's a setting apart that goes on um, in that moment. But actually, as we're going to read in the scripture, actually it also kind of happened before the earth was formed. We're going to get into that in a minute. But there is also a moment in time where you are actually set apart. 
So for Paul, he's on his way to Damascus, Jesus breaks in. In that moment, he is set apart. His life is turned around. He becomes a holy one. And yet, he lives in the knowledge, I've been set apart from my mother's womb. In fact, Ephesians goes even further, so we'll, we'll get there in a minute. But this, a saint means a holy one, which means that if you are a Christian, you are a saint, which means it means that to be a Christian is someone who is set apart for God. Which means a lot more than you attend church on Sunday rather than mosque on Friday. Or it means a, a lot more than, um, how can I describe it, that you go to Christian meetings and you have a Bible in your house and sometimes read it. It means, and I'm, I, I, know, I think sometimes when I say this, I think maybe some people think, like, I'm being a bit extreme or exaggerating. I'm really not. This is really what it is. It means that you, uh, you yourself, you, you do not hold back any of yourself from him. You do not hold back any of yourself. This is really important that we that we get to grips um, with this. Uh, you know, so I, I, the Catholic thing is really unhelpful with a saint, particularly with the saints, because it, it creates two categories. And what it does, it, 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 it builds this mindset in place where the average Christian looks on at impressive Christians and says, "Oh well, they're just in that category." But actually, here's the reality. Impressive uh, Christians are really those who, number one, who have stopped being ashamed over their past. That's the first thing. A, a Christian who really gets to grips with being a Christian and becomes fruitful has stopped being, uh, becoming a slave to their past mistakes. That's a really big deal. If you can grasp that the blood of Jesus sets you free from the shame of all the wrong things you've done and the wrong things that have been done to you, and you can increasingly learn to walk in freedom from that, then you just begin to run in a way that is much freer than if you're constantly living, looking back at what if and all of that. So somebody's free from that. Secondly, an impressive Christian or a fruitful Christian is someone who stopped, stopped being defensive over their present. So they've stopped defending themselves and living in a way that kind of, how can I describe it? Living in a way where they're still trying to prove themselves to others, still trying to show in some way that they're not as bad as the next person, or still trying to show in some way that they're up to scratch, rather than someone who acknowledges they're not impressive. They're not impressive in and of themselves, but they've been accepted by God in Jesus as a gift, and so that they're no longer living hiding fundamentally hiding not knowing not allowing themselves to be known kind of hoping they don't get found out no no a fruitful christian is someone who just says i've been found out because i've come to god as i am and you know what he's gone, gone and done he's gone and paid for my sin and adopted me so no longer shown over the past no longer defensive over your present and no longer controlling over your future that's massive that is huge that you're no longer trying to orchestrate your own future as captain of your own destiny. But that you've actually said, now I'm going to trust you. And what trusting you with my future looks like is this. I'm going to obey you in the here and now. Because if I, if I obey you in the here and now, what I'm saying is, is that I'm trusting that if I do what you say now, because I trust that you're wiser and good, better than me, and it, 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 your heart is perfectly for me, and that you love me, and that you've got good plans for me, so if I will trust you and then, and then obey you, that I'm letting you then um, work out a, a future purpose for me that is glorious. Rather than saying, I fundamentally am the one who is going to... 
take control in my heart of where my life goes. So to be an impressive Christian or a fruitful Christian or to live out what it means to be a saint, the Lord wants to release you from shame from your past, defensiveness over your present and being controlling over your future. That's it. Your background, your temperament, none of those things can stop you being fruitful as a Christian. None of those things. It's really, really, real big one there. Um, so like children, we're learning how to really trust Jesus. You know, not just Sundays, Monday mornings, <laughs> with managers and with bosses, with friends and with fram- family, with finances, with hopes, dreams and fears. All of that, we're saying we're going to trust you. Um, Jesus. So you become a saint the moment you hand your life over to Jesus, the moment you repent of your sin and trust his name to save you. That's when you become a saint. So that's who it's to. From Paul to the saints. And saints who are faithful. The faithful really means that you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be true to him who's rescued you and true to who he's made you. You're going to live it out. By his power, by his strength, but you, you know, you're not going to be a, uh, someone who's a pretender, which is very easy to, to become. And the Lord wants to release us from that. You know, he's... just want you to know, we, we are not a perfect church, right? Is, what's that saying? You know, if, you, if you're after a perfect church, don't join it because you'll spoil it. <laughs> uh, we're not a perfect church at all. But what, what, what we're trying to do is just trying to keep this thing real. We're genuinely trying to keep this thing real, right? What we don't want is a scenario where you all gather together, high five, pretend, you know, pretend that we've, we've all got it all sewn up and then go home again. It's horrible. And as soon as you hit a rough patch, you don't come back here. <laughs> yeah, n- no, we, we want to be real with, with each other where we're at, honest before the Lord, because the Lord loves truthfulness in the inmost parts. That's what the Bible says. So be true with him, true with, true, truth with each other, and in that sort of context, you can actually begin to genuinely grow, which is something that he does. He brings growth, but we're trying to create an environment for that. So, okay, so that's where it's from, that's where it's to. Then we've got a to and a from, right, in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace means undeserved favour, and peace is where that leads to. Okay? If you receive undeserved favour from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, there is peace between you and God. Hostilities have ceased. That's called peace with God. And then there's the peace of God. Where the reality of the fact, I'm no longer running from God. I'm no longer trying to justify myself. I'm no longer under the burden of skeletons in my closet. I've come to God, brought my sin and all the muck and the darkness to the cross. I've received forgiveness and brand new life. Ah! <laughs> I'm in the family now, no longer an enemy, no longer under wrath, I'm now under favour and grace. That leads to immense peace. So grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The next verses and the next three weeks we're going to unpack what those blessings are. Okay, so God is to be adored, blessed, Because of the way that in Christ he has poured out every and any spiritual blessing you could imagine over us. It's incredible. You know, I mean, if Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive, well, how blessed must God be if he's given us this much? How full must he be to be able to give this much? To be able to move towards your enemies who hate you, insult you, blaspheme you, ignore you. To be able to move towards them with such 
such a reach of grace and favour that you reach beyond the darkness, you reach beyond the bitterness, you reach beyond the regret, the pain, you reach beyond the brokenheartedness, you reach beyond the shame and all of that, and you reach beyond it and you are able to rescue lives out of it and, and, and pull them out of the darkness, the muck and the mire, forgive, bring in the light, adopt them into your family and bring them into destiny. I mean, that is incredible fullness. That is extraordinary. I mean, that takes more than just power. That takes a love and a determination to do good that is just beyond words. That this is, blessed be God. <laughs> That's what he's done. That is what he's done. So then we're going to just look at verses 4, verse 5, and verse, verse 4. So here's the first blessing. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Just say the in love there, those two words. No one knows whether it's before him in love or in love he predestined. No one knows where it belongs. It's one sentence. So we'll just go for both, right? So even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, something happened before the world was formed which involved you. Something happened in the heart of God before the foundation of the world which involved you if you are a believer. He chose you. Now, people struggle with this for all kinds of reasons. People turn it into arguments, speculations, philosophies. Uh, it, this was never put in the Bible to, to, to lead us into that. It was, it was never there so we could start scratch, scratching our heads about, well, how does that work? I mean, if, some people say, well, that sounds unfair. I'll tell you what's unfair. Forgiveness. Adoption. Salvation. That stuff's really unfair. Okay, we, this is a really unfair situation we found ourselves in here, guys, but don't complain. <laughs> Alright, don't start, just enjoy it. You don't start getting into the whole thing of, you know, but how do I know if I'm chosen, if I'm not, and that sort of thing. We, we, the Bible never even, uh, for one moment, takes people down that road. Never, ever, ever. What it does is the Bible speaks to those who have come to Christ and say the fundamental... Uh, foundational, after every other reason why you are in Christ is this, he chose you before the foundation of the world. Yes, you called out to him. Yes, you repented of your sins. Yes, you came forward in that meeting. Yes, you turned away from this and that. Yes, you cried out to the Lord and he saved you. But actually, something went on before the foundation of the world where he chose you in Christ. I mean, he can do that if he wants to. Because he's God. He has, every, he has absolute freedom to do that. Now, Romans 9 unpacks the whole thing. Well, if he's chosen some, does that mean he hasn't chosen others? And, and what Paul says is very interesting. He says, what if God had done that? He doesn't say God did do that. He doesn't say God did choose some for heaven and some for hell. He, doesn't, he never teaches that. But he says, what if God did? Because he knows where this thinking can go. And his, his answer is, who are you, O oh man? So what if God did? Well, who are you, a man? Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? What right does the clay have to say to the potter, what are you doing? No right. So, so, it, so if you go down that road, it's, it, the wall that you meet is, who are you, a man? What, why on earth do you think that you could hold God to account? How, could, how, can, you, how can you begin to... What's, what, what state is your heart in if you think you can start holding God to account? He's God. He's God. But the Bible also teaches things like this. It is God's will that none should perish and that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. 
teaches that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in 2 Peter chapter 3. He teaches it twice, explicitly in the New Testament. How do those two things work together? No idea. The Bible never tries to show how they harmonize. But the same writer, Paul, in Ephesians, writing this in 1 Timothy 2, says that. It's God's will that none should perish. You think, well, how? I don't know how. But the Bible says this, the, the, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us, that we might fear him and obey him. So what's been revealed? God, if you're a Christian here, here's what's been revealed. God chose you before the foundation of the world. That is for your security. When you blow it. When you actually have those moments where you realise how bad you are. Right? Yeah, that is what you need to know. That he knows, he knows you better than you know yourself. And before the foundation of the world said you. It's for your security. What's also revealed is this. It's God's will that none should perish. So I say when I'm praying for my loved ones, my neighbours that don't yet know the Lord, I'm saying, Lord, save. You said it's your will to save them. And I'm going all out for it. And I'll, I'll leave the mystery of that with the Lord. That's how you live as a Christian. You take the things that are revealed and you pursue them wholeheartedly and the result is you grow properly. So he chose us. You can breathe, breathe a sigh of relief if you're a Christian and you're just feeling like, you know, you've... you've blown it, you, there's no, you know you, you, if you're at the moment a believer but you're in one of those seasons where you've seen yourself for what you are without him <laughs> you know those moments you think oh, you're just overwhelmed with your cowardice like Peter when he denied Jesus or overwhelmed with your stubbornness or overwhelmed with your half-heartedness he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love Now that holy and blameless is interesting because they're the words that are used in the Old Testament for the sacrifices that were given that were kind of worthy. If you're going to sacrifice a lamb, it's got to be holy and blameless, without blemish. It's the same terms that are used there. And the idea is is that through Christ's faultlessness, his sacrifice, you have been made that way before God. You've been made to be able to stand before him holy and blameless. It's also speaking about the fact that when God goes to work in you by his spirit... He works in you such holiness and blamelessness. In real, in real terms, he begins to deal with us in our hearts and our attitudes and the way we live and the way we treat others and the way we come across. And we start this journey of growth and repentance and cleansing. This is, this is what he chose to happen to you before the foundation of the world. Are you in the refiner's fire at the moment? And you're just in that moment where you feel like, you know, like when, when the refiners, when they, when, they, when they refine the gold, what happens is all the dross, all the stuff in the gold that's not really gold, when it goes in the heat, all the dross, it, it comes out and it sits on the surface. And then at the right moment, it's wiped off by the smelter. And that gold has then become purer than it was before. And the Bible uses that image to describe spiritual growth. It's like you're plunged into fire for seasons. And what happens is all the dross comes out. And you see yourself. And all you can really see is the dross. You think, oh my goodness. I felt so spiritual two months ago. Now look at me. You think it's awful. God must have rejected me. No, he's put you in the fire. So that stuff can come out. So he can wipe it off. And you'll be purer than you were before. That's how it works. So... Hallelujah indeed. Verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So in love, now the word predestined is always used with regards to sonship. So it's, not, so it's saying that it means that he marked you out beforehand to be adopted into his family. God marked you out beforehand to be part of his family. He wants you. 
There's something so profound about adoption in the sense that it's more profound than, in, in some ways, than having children naturally. Because with adoption you choose, with natural birth you get what you're given. There's some, yeah, there's something very profound about adoption because you, there's a yes, yes, please. It's amazing. And, 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 and the Bible is saying that that is the dynamic that beforehand you were marked out. Yeah, that one, I want that one in my family. It's the heart of God. To adopt you. And I love this. This is according to the purpose of his will. And in that word purpose, there's, there's something about pleasure, God's pleasure, that actually, this wasn't just like, well, better do it, I'm God. It's not like that. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you know, I better just have them. It pleased God to adopt you. That it pleased his heart. That he, that not, not that they, don't, don't go in on yourself at this point and find out, oh, I wonder what, you know, I believe children of the future. You know, here we inside myself. What did he see? It's not like that. It's not like he saw, he saw really how beautiful you are. No. He just delighted in you. Because he delighted in you. He makes a point when he chooses Israel, he says, I didn't choose you because you were bigger or more powerful than anyone. I chose you because I chose you. So he chose you because he chose you. So it shouldn't turn you in on yourself. It should turn you up to him and say, wow, you delight in me. That, that is where it goes. That's where, that's where the whole thing should take you. And it's not like he, he chose you despite his will. Like, well, I really want to do this. They're really going to mess up the plan. But I'm loving, so I'll draw them in. That would be God choosing you despite his purpose and his will. Or it's not that God chose you sort of ambivalent to his purpose or his will. So it's like, I'm going to do this, and well, well, they're not, you know, just go on, in you go. Do you know what I mean? You're not going to cause too much trouble, so just keep, keep a low profile. He chose you in accordance with his purpose and will. That means that he's got a part for you to play in it. That is, I don't ask me how, it's somehow unique. Now again, it's what, don't start going, oh, I'm a snowflake. You know, don't start all that. Right? It, he's got a place for you. He's got a purpose for you. He's gifted you. In, yeah, there's no one like you yet. But it's not about you. Okay? It's not about you. It's about, it's about, wow, how has he created all these people that are kind of all carry his image, but are so different and has created a purpose and rule that weaves us all into it. It leads us to the praise of his glorious grace, not to the praise of my wonderful uniqueness which is verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved when you get this it causes praise now there's something about praise at its heart which is that it's a it's a it's an it's a um, spontaneous response to uh, something amazing so you know when you see like an incredible sunset, or you go somewhere new. So we had the joy of it, it, discovering Lake Annecy in France this summer. Never seen it before. Never heard of it before this summer. But driving around the corner, and then suddenly you see it, there's gasps in the car, and all of that. What's going on there? We've all seen something very beautiful and breathtaking in the moment, and we all start saying things. Can't wait to can't wait to get in there. You know, look at the colour of it. Look at the way the sun's shining on it. What's happening is we are praising because our breath's being taken away by something. Now you see, there is such thing as a sacrifice of praise. Whereas a Christian, there are seasons where you praise Him, but you're not, to be honest, nothing in you feels like it. And it's right that we do because we know He's still good. So there is that. 
yes. But at its heart, praise is where you see who he is and what he's done and his incredible love for and delight in you. And that he has a place for you in his family and that it's his pleasure. And you say, Lord, you're amazing. Now, interesting, what the Bible seems to say is this, is that when that happens, when you go, Lord, you're amazing, all that God was doing has reached his destination. When hearts are amazed by him, all that he was doing in this mighty work in Jesus coming and living and dying for us and paying the price for our sin and rising from the dead and God creating this wonderful new nation called the church that he's going to glorify and mature so that she can be joined with the Son in harmony and unity forever. All the whole mighty purpose of God, when our hearts go, wow, Lord, I just think there's no one like you. It's like, ah, this is what this is for. Hearts that, hearts that love him. Hearts that love him. It's really quite simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Well, how do we do that? We love him because he first loved us. Which is why Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. It's totally appropriate to keep on meditating on his mighty love for us. Because where does it go? To the praise of his glorious grace. And that is the destination. And so we've got some minutes now to to bring some praise to his glorious grace. You see, it is meaningful when you come and you sing to the Lord like this. If it's coming from a sincere heart, it's actually, what it is, it's an expression of what the gospel has ultimately accomplished. People that no longer love other things more than they love him, the people whose hearts actually really love God. That is key to the restoration of the whole of creation. So I hope we understand that and grasp that and are able through these songs to delight freshly in his mighty love for us in Jesus Christ. That he has known us and loved us from eternity. And that his presence among us can reveal that into our hearts. And if you are here and you just think, I want to know this. If, you say, if there's something in your heart right now, you're going, I want to know this. <laughs> what do I do? The Bible says if you call on his name, if you call on his name, Jesus, and in that moment, in calling on his name, you're not just calling out a name. What you're saying is, you're saying, rescue me. And, you're, and you are turning away from those things that are dark, from the, what the Bible calls sin. You're saying, Do you know what, I've had enough. I've had enough. I don't want it anymore. I want the light. I want the light. You're turning to him and you're crying out his name. As you do that, that he will bring new life to you. And in that moment when he does that, you will know, oh my goodness, I have been chosen from the foundation of the world. So if if that's you, if God is working on your heart, I'm not going to send you to me or anyone else first of all. Of course we'd love to talk with you and encourage you. I want to send you to Jesus. (laughs) As we sing and break bread, call out to him. Call out to him. It's totally appropriate, you know, to let your loved ones know or whoever you came with know. And, you know, of course it is. And, and, you know, the Bible's called the church to make disciples. So we want to help you learn how to follow him and we want to walk with you. Yes, 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 yes. But you know where it starts with an encounter with Jesus? And then your foundation's right. Because you're not, you're not primarily thinking about the preacher or the singers or your friend. You know I have met with God. 
And now I know because I know because I know and no one can ever take that from me. That's the right foundation. Should we stand? Father, we just want to say (laughs) your grace is amazing. And uh, thank you for just... I mean, I don't even know what to say. Thank you that before this all begun, before this all begun, Lord, you somehow knew us and gave thought to us and conspired to rescue us. And uh, thank you that we find ourselves here today loving you because you first loved us. You've done a work, Lord. You've done a work that none of us can fully explain, but we know because we know because we know. And we want to say thank you. And I want to pray, I want to just ask for the work of your spirit among us. Even now as we pray and sing and break bread and call out in the name of Jesus, I just want to ask Holy Spirit that you would do some mighty things in this room. I want to pray that you would save souls. I want to pray that you would heal minds. I want to pray that you would heal bodies. I want to just ask that your kingdom would come and that the the presence and the government of Jesus will become known in a very powerful way. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for how kind you are. Amen.